0: and an issue for all women hello hannah here hope you're in the middle of having a great weekend if not maybe this will perk it up a bit it's our latest chops in which i chat to writer art historian and printmaker dr amy jeffs a woman of seemingly endless talents whose latest book wild is out to buy now i'm not going to waste my time and yours talking about what that book is about as amy is going to do it really well herself but i do need to let you know That the song you'll hear at the end of the interview is from the audiobook and is written and performed by Amy. Like I said, a woman of seemingly endless talents. So what I will fill the rest of this intro with is a plug for some great stuff we've got coming up. When I finish recording this, I'm hopping on the Zoom with our friend, the neuroscientist, Professor Sophie Scott, to talk about how our brains work. Don't let me ever hear you say we don't cover all topics at Standard Issue. Earlier this week, I spent an hour in the company of two absolutely smashing blokes, Jim Howick and Ben Wilbond, two of the creators, stars and writers of everybody's favourite sitcom, Ghosts. Next week, you'll hear Mickey chat with Maddie Dilly from the Blurt Foundation, a social enterprise dedicated to helping those affected by depression. And she'll also be getting on the Zoom with Mickey Berenje, singer, songwriter, guitarist and founding member of 90s alt-rockers Lush. To talk trauma, stage dives, and stardom, and Jen's got some excellent guests coming up too. To make sure you don't miss any of this, you know what to do. That's right, it's press subscribe wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Dr. Amy Jeffs, author of an excellent new fiction slash nonfiction book, Wild tales from early medieval Britain thank you so much for joining us Amy thank you so
1: much for having me Hannah
0: when Anna at Quercus hi Anna if you're listening got in touch and asked me (laughs) asked me if I wanted a copy of your book I said I don't think I've got time to read a book Anna but I do have time to listen to an audiobook so if you could send that to me that would be brilliant so she did that but then she said I'm going to send you the book anyway and I Mm -hmm. said honestly don't worry hold on to your copies But then as soon as it arrived, I saw why she'd sent it to me, because it's got these just absolutely gorgeous wood carvings by you in it. Thank you. (laughs) As it was, I didn't have time to read it. I did listen to the audiobook, and I discovered that the audiobook has some beautiful songs written and (laughs) sung by you. So I suppose my opening question, Amy, is where do you get off being so talented?
1: (laughs) Um, It's um, really exciting studying the middle ages because they've got such a they had you know, medieval Europe i very generally here yeah. so just, I'll just go balls out but they had such a a liberal approach to storytelling in in whatever media it took to get the story across and you really see that you know the default way of consuming literature was hourly, you know, in, in recitation. This is why I'm such a fan of the audiobook in general, because I feel as though it's getting away from that essentially monastic model of private reading as the best and dominant form of reading. It's just one way to consume literature. It's not the only way or the best way. In some manuscripts that contain things like the legends of Alexander, stories that were really gripping and exciting for medieval audiences, you have illustrations in the margins that show maybe figures playing the harp or the or or reading aloud, or singing aloud, which suggests that there was an expectation that the story might be recited with musical accompaniment or some parts of it might be sung. That just gives you a license if you're doing retellings or uh, stories inspired by med- uh, medieval literature to play around. I'm not a, you know, a highly trained musician by any stretch of the imagination, but I grew up singing. And one of the ways that I tried to engage with the stories and think about how to tell them, what was the emotional nexus of the story that mm. I wanted to capture, I started sort of tinkling on the piano of trying to make up some songs to try and get to the mood of the narrative that was helped by doing some of the lino cuts. But anyway, the reason I'm saying this is I'm not a trained musician, but I, I did these recordings. I record myself playing the piano and singing. I don't play the piano very well, then sent them as voice notes to a close friend from when I was studying, who is a highly trained musician, who then arranged them. So I don't want it to come across like you know, <laughs> that incredible musician, but it's uh, it's the kind of opportunity for collaboration and for bringing in people who, who have that kind of expertise and how it can complement your own areas of expertise. You know, my training is yeah. as a medievalist, as a writer, and that's something I feel really confident and comfortable in, and kind of in the technique of. And in the same way, you know, the, the printmaking has been an opportunity to to be ensconced at a studio and to benefit from the sort of imbibing the work of the other printmakers at that studio and learning from the books on the shelves around the place and from talking to people. So, you know, it just, it just opens doors in the process of producing the book and makes it a really vibrant and rich thing to do and hopefully some of that is then conveyed to, to readers and listeners.
0: I absolutely love listening to the audiobook I think they've come on a million miles since the first time when you used to get all those tapes to listen to in the car <laughs> yeah they've come on so substantially but yeah it's it's, it's an absolute delight to listen to. Thank you if you've maybe summarised what the book is for our listeners a bit better than I did by saying it was fiction and non-fiction.
1: <laughs> so, Wild, it's structured across seven themed chapters entitled Earth, Ocean, Forest, Beast, Fen, Catastrophe, Paradise. Each of those chapters opens with a short story that is inspired by real-life objects and texts that survive from early medieval Britain. So it's not strict retellings in that sense. They're just they're new fiction, new short stories, followed by commentaries that introduce those sources. These really enigmatic and beautiful old English and Welsh poems, texts written in Ireland but in Latin. Also things like Wales' bone, Frank's casket, which is covered in scenes from legends that come from biblical and classical and Germanic contexts. Sutton who ship burial, that kind of thing. Mm. And it, each chapter reflects on a different aspect of, of how these sources explore an idea of the wilderness. So it might be the ocean as a place of psychological exile, or as a kind of metaphor. The idea of a frozen, icy ocean as a, a kind of metaphor for perhaps something like depression, or the forest as a setting that it evokes a kind of madness, the overwhelm, anxiety, and and whether you know what these places meant to the early medieval imagination. How those ideas can still be really, really resonant now and it travels from you know the earth so quite a dark place that opens with a kind of ghost story and uh, oh it's and fantastic that a, story not even a kind of ghost story it is a ghost story yeah <laughs> and then it travels through to the sky and the paradise chapter um which so i i hope that although it has i think it has that kind of autumnal halloweeny darkness in the first few chapters hopefully that opens out into something much more expansive and harmonious
0: i really enjoyed the one about the they're all brilliant but i really enjoyed the one about Thank the you. fens we've just been talking about me being in cambridge you know i live near the fens mm-hmm. and there is something really otherworldly about them and i'm talking about the fens now that have been drained yes sometimes when i drive out up the a10 towards Ely and there's all of this because of all the water there's all of this mist and fog and then Ely Cathedral just rising above it and it is Mm -hmm. spooky as hell and actually the only thing that's ever likely to happen to me on that road is a car accident because the road is really dangerous but actually it feels... Because the, the, the short story you've written about that is an escape, is someone coming to chase me. And there is something in the fence that I think really screams mm. there's something in there coming for you.
1: Yes, I remember once getting the train from Cambridge to Norwich on a freezing winter morning and we were going to my supervisor's house to read ghost stories. This was during my PhD and one of my friends was really good at writing ghost stories and she, is, uh, she's called Christina Faraday. She's an early modernist and she'd written this amazing story about a harpsichord and we uh, we got the train and i was looking out over what you're describing that that frozen misty flat landscape and for a moment and we're just looking at this field and a hare was running alongside the train at kind of the same speed of the train for a, a few seconds and i remember i felt as though the, the window that i was looking at was completely misted up apart from a circle in which the hare was running yeah. Like it was caught and then it was gone. And it was like one of those moments where I thought, did I even see that? It was just so, it's an incredibly beautiful and eerie landscape, as you say.
0: I want to ask you, I'm i am really interested in history, but I have to say I am more interested, the nearer we get to it, the more interested I am, oddly. <laughs> and I think part of that is because it's really difficult to see the individual the further back you go. mm mm-hmm but you actually have found the individual in these stories. But I wonder what it was that, that speaks to you about this period.
1: Yeah, well, I think that the way in for me was this collection of old English poems called the, we've retrospectively called them the Old English Elegies. They appear among 95 riddles in a manuscript called the Exeter Book that's been at Exeter Cathedral since 1072, which is bonkers to me. Yeah. And the, the elegies seem to be almost like riddles in themselves. They're very, very enigmatic. They probably don't have answers in the way the other, much more straightforward riddles around them do. And they each concern a kind of there's a narrator, generally, then a a kind of description of a setting like being out on the frozen ocean in a boat all by yourself, or uh, trapped under an oak tree in a cave and far from your friends, or uh, walking through the ruins of a deserted and um, and ruined city. The thing that I found really amazing about them when I first met them when I was 18, when I I didn't think this at the time, but now that i think back on it i think one of the reasons they really spoke to me was the way that there's no technology described in general if it is it's in very sparse i mean there's one which is um, from the perspective of a message written in runes on a piece of wood and the piece of wood is the thing speaking but other than that it's like there's the the narrator the human there's the wilderness and you could transplant it into any century there's some specific descriptions of you know where is the Lord, where is the warrior, where is the treasure giver at the feast, where is the bright cup? But those kinds of descriptions, they 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 could almost be, you know, where is the pub, where is the, the community of the village? You know, it's very clear to see how these things are timeless, the themes that the poems explore, you know, loss and isolation mm. and love. Very, very bare and kind of essential, elemental poems. And so I think that, you know, it's very easy when we think about people of the past to imagine them less emotionally sophisticated than we are now. And there is nothing unsophisticated about the way in which emotion is described in these poems. It is so real and so relatable and familiar. And then it's made very, very beautiful, I think, through the um, old English language or the Welsh language. And there's translations at the end of the book facing the original so that you can have a go kind of mouthing the old English words aloud. And then in the the use of the wilderness is this kind of metaphor for these different types of psychological state or, or philosophical reflection. Yeah. They're, just, they're just very beautiful worlds that are created.
0: This is your second book about yes. the old world. The first one, Storyland, was was hugely successful. Have you been surprised by how popular this not just your books but in interest in this period has been
1: yes yeah when i when i was sort of first reading about these sorts of things when i was 18 it really wasn't something i could talk to my friends about at school you know it wasn't like a <laughs> an area that people were generally into. I think with the rise of book talk and stuff, I think there's a lot more teens reading kind of fantasy and science fiction and stuff that does draw on this time period or ideas about this time period quite heavily. There's a lot of people reading retellings of myths. And one of the things that's quite surprised me and keeps on surprising me is when I go to events, how young the audience is, I wouldn't have anticipated that. So that's really wonderful. Yeah. And actually, and also the kind of interest that they bring. So just the kind of talking to people afterwards and finding out they're printmakers or historians or teachers or, you know, and learning from them that's been a really exciting bonus to the whole process of publishing a book or bringing out a book.
0: These stories are, you know, predominantly women's stories, and women's voices are so absent from history. So was that something you deliberately set out to put the women back in these stories
1: well i am kind of loath to go into a writing project like i'm going to make this a feminist or or overtly environmentalist thing, yeah, and kind of you don't want to impose that on the sources. I think one of the reasons I fell in love with this material was the way it seems to step away from these kind of stereotypes of epic early medieval literature with the great hero mm. at the center, the kind of male sword swinging hero who, you know, is treated very subtly and in very interesting and often subversive ways in these texts. So I don't want to bastardize that. But um, definitely, I was probably, as you know, an 18 year old girl at university meeting these poems the first time. Delighted to find characters that I felt I could relate to. The the elegies, by their very nature, even when there's a male character at the centre, they are exploring what it's like to be be liminal and be on the edge of things whether that's because you're you're suffering from emotionally Mm. that means you can't fit in anymore or um as in the case of the welsh poetry there's the the amazing poem clav abiciao which i explore it's from the perspective of a man with leprosy and cast out into the forest and he's got to live out his days there and he describes you know there is ivy covering the oak stump. My clothes are growing loose. I can hear the cuckoo calling. I know I will be ill tonight, to paraphrase. You know, it's very, very beautiful and evocative descriptions of um, of the forest at the same time as descriptions of his his encroaching illness. These are characters who aren't making it in yeah. the medieval, early medieval world, and yet they're given centre stage. I didn't kind of set out to do anything other than respond Two poems that I found very moving and I probably found them moving because of the way they decenter the kind of story.
0: Yeah. So last question. Well, maybe second from last question. <laughs> we have a, a terrible habit and I say we because I am one of the worst offenders and I do try and stop doing it. But it is quite hard to, to have a sort of presentism about history. So whenever you look at history, you try and reflect Again, I'm saying you when I really mean me. Try and reflect what we are living through now and see mm-hmm. see the past in it. And I mean, obviously, it's useful. You know, he who doesn't understand history is doomed to repeat it and, and all of that. But mm-hmm. I think sometimes we go too far. So actually, I found one of the joys in this is there's no politics in it. I suppose there's some politics as in lowercase p politics. So I wonder if we were going to say, what can we learn from the medieval world? What, what do you what do you think it is?
1: I can tell you what I've learned. <laughs>
0: yeah. I can't speak
1: for what other people will, but um, I really found writing this book to be very, very helpful. I had a baby in May of 2021, and you know, was very lucky in that she's healthy and everything was fine, and I'm not worrying about where the next meal will come from. I, you know, I didn't have immediate things to worry about, and so I think when when you're kind of like this. Shellless crustacean postpartum sitting there in a dark room <laughs> with a creature that can't talk to you your brain reaches out and somewhat inevitably overcame became very very anxious about climate change and you know other geopolitical issues and I found that when you know when the opportunity came along to, to start working on this book and I proposed the idea to the publishers and they accepted I went up to my parents house for two nights a week and was, and was able to immerse myself two mornings of writing for a few months and um, every week. And one of the ideas that, that kind of came through for me was this idea of harmony. So basically, well, ascesis, let's, let's start there. So one of the themes that crops up is the hermit going out and living on his own in the wild. We call it now like an ascetic lifestyle, something mm-hmm. that, that goes off into the wilderness. But in in a, a book published by my former PhD supervisor um, on Gothic sculpture, he talks about how ascesis actually can be applied as well to the kind of communal monastic living, where they would exercise. It's from the Greek word for exercise, and so it's about exercising yourself in ways that keep your your bodily tempers in check. You know, we're talking about a time when people, when the whole world was understood to be in a state of constant flux. Yeah. Nature was, our bodies were. That was about keeping all of these humors in balance, and emotional ones as well as physical ones, and and that that kind of harmonizing process would kind of bring you closer to salvation. So that is a kind of Christian reading. But I, I was thinking about, you know, that work that monks would do in, in their monasteries and, and nuns in the scriptorium, perhaps illuminating the word of God, and how they understood themselves to be in the sixth and final age of the world. And yet, they continued in this minuscule, dedicated, meticulous work, beautiful work, and I'm sure took joy in it because when you look at something like the Lindisfarne Gospels made out on that little outcrop of land in the North Sea, there is a rejoicing in that process of filling these these initials with the bodies of interlacing bodies of birds. I became interested in the idea of community in that in the voyage of St. Brendan, there's a group of birds sitting in a tree that sing the Psalms together and they're actually fallen angels that got stuck on earth on the way to hell they're allowed once a year at Easter to come together in the shape of birds and sing. And they sing how sweet, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And they're like a kind of metaphor for a monastic community. But I liked it, you know, I was then kind of extrapolating from that, the community of of our friends and family, the kind of what it means to work together socially and to be then going, why would we now undertake work that we love to do, like creative work, knitting a jumper or writing a book or wood engraving in the context of these this rhetoric of doom that we have yeah. constantly around us how do you kind of function within that and, and, and enjoy this work and rejoice in being alive and the kind of conclusion that I came to about the medieval monastic attitude was that this was work undertaken not in spite of the threat of doom but because of it they looked and they, they saw what they you know, read as portents in the sky, they, they saw that the end was nigh and they took action according to their understanding in a spirit of hope and hope of salvation. You know, this doesn't transplant, translate exactly onto the modern day. And I, you know, I'm not a, I don't believe we're all doomed in that sense. You know, I don't think it's like any more so than we've ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think we need to take judicious action in a spirit of hope. Yeah. and that kind of ascesis, that daily harmonizing of 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 our work through by doing some things that we love by exercising our bodies by supporting our friends and neighbors that is all that exercise that ascesis. and so that's what i have I took away and I found it very healing process to um to be writing this I don't know what others will find or learn from the medieval sources I discuss. I I put a further reading list at the end, so if people want to go off and have their own adventures or revisit things that maybe they studied when they were younger, they can do so and, and draw their own conclusions.
0: That's a really interesting answer, Amy. That's a really hopeful answer because um, I suppose in my head, what's going to happen is we're going to like be like children of men, where everything just starts to descend into <laughs> madness because there's no point because there's no next generation.
1: Yeah, I think that's um, it's that chaos, it's cosmos and chaos. Yeah, you know, it's um, cosmos is is the creation of order out of chaos, and I think that when I had just had this baby, you know, I was standing on the edge of chaos, so you feel like you are, and I think a lot of us feel as though we are, but that create that that generating of order that active creating whatever it might be might be just cooking tomato soup that is a really important human activity i think to take us away from the edge of chaos in our minds yeah and you know, and hope and hope, a hopeful
0: one absolutely so when are you going to write me another book for me to read please amy <laughs>
1: <laughs> i think there's one on the horizon for 2024 right yeah I, i'm not I think i'm allowed to talk about it yeah exactly but it's definitely going to be in the uh in the, similar kind of model to storyland and wild with the stories the non-fiction commentaries and the illustrations um it will be another meaty one wild is quite a slim book compared to storyland
0: amy this has been brilliant it's been honestly i've yeah, had a lovely time you. reading your book and i've had a lovely time chatting to you
1: yeah it's been a real treat thank you hannah now i'm spinning on the water wide water salt water until all the crying of mothers is done. Standard issue for all women.